There is an old saying that you don't send a boy to do a man's job. And that is exactly what it appear, what appeared to be happening on a famous day in Israel's history. When a shepherd boy who couldn't have been, couldn't have been 20 years old, stepped forward to meet the most notorious feared warrior of his day. The story is so famous, so well known, that it's often used in self-help literature. It's March Madness time, and you'll hear, if you watch the tournament, if you watch the college basketball tournament, you'll hear, or you've heard already, we're into the round of 16 now, so Davids are mostly dealt with, okay? Goliath won for the most part. You'll hear one team compared to David and the other compared to Goliath. What you need to understand is that this isn't legend, this actually happened. There was one fateful afternoon in the Valley of Elah when a young man who was probably 16 years old, we can't know for sure David's age, but we know that 20 was the legal age of going to war, and David had three older brothers who were already at the front, and he was the youngest in a large family of boys. Put all the data that the Bible gives us together, and what we come up with with David was he was probably 16 or 17 years old. In other words, he might have been a high school junior in our day. He might have been recently licensed to drive if he lived in our town. He would have been bothered by things like pimples and the awkwardness of the prom and whether he was going to have an outbreak in his skin at the worst possible time. Maybe that was going to make him less attractive in any prospective dates. That's our day. That's our time. David lived in a very different world, but he was still probably only 16 years old. He had been left at home while every able-bodied man that could, that could carry a weapon and go to the front had gone to the border, to the Valley of Elah. David carried within him, I'm sure, a great deal of confusion because as we've been reading across the Bible, we come at a portion of time in Israel's history where the king they insisted on having has departed from the Lord. His name was Saul. He was the tallest man in the nation. He stood head and shoulders above his countrymen. To look at him, he looked presidential. He looked like a monarch, but his heart was far from God. And God has already warned Saul that God himself has sought a man, one of the greatest compliments ever paid in the Bible, God has sought for himself a man after God's own heart. And he has found him in this shepherd boy. On this day, the shepherd boy knows two things. He knows that he has already been anointed king of Israel. Privately, in the privacy of his own home, God has passed over all of David's older brothers. And when Samuel, when David finally entered the room, God spoke to the prophet Samuel and said, he's the one. But for now, David goes back and he tends the sheep. And the five, we find the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's a long story, and I want you to read it straight from your Bible. If you didn't bring one with you, please help yourself to one of ours. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take that Bible home with you. And let's read about a boy who was not sent. He stepped forward to do a man's job. 1 Samuel 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Hezekiah and Ephesdamim. 
And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. If you went with us a few years ago to Israel, you'll remember this place. We stood there. And having grown up on this story and trying to imagine myself as a young kid in that place, I don't know exactly what I imagined, but it wasn't the actual Valley of Elah. What surprised me about the place is how small it really is. There really is a fat, uh, flat little piece of land between two embankments. It's a very small place such that a man in the Israel's front lines with good eyesight could have easily seen across and seen the facial expression of the soldier standing ahead of him. And realize if we ever get the nerve up and actually run across this little piece of dirt, that man right there might be the man that kills me. You need to understand the physical, the social pressure, the spiritual pressure that Israel is under. If the Philistines are on their border. They're in a piece of land that we're told the details matter when God tells a story. He doesn't waste a word. They're encamped in a place that belongs to Judah. These are farmers. They're not professional soldiers. The Philistines have harassed them actually to the point that it's very likely that Saul and Jonathan, his son Jonathan, were probably some of the very few men who actually carried swords. The Philistines have, comp- have controlled the iron in the land, so they're, they're stuck with things that barely resemble weapons. And they're on the border of their land, and behind them are their homes and their wives and their children. And they know very well if this large army pushes us back, there will be no mercy, no quarter, and no compassion for the people we left at home. We have to win. There shouldn't have been, there shouldn't have been fear that day. They've been in the land for several centuries now. They're standing in the land that God had promised Abraham centuries ago when he said, I will bless you and I will make you a great nation. I will give you land and I will give you, a, I will give you descendants and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Well, the Philistines, as you're about to read, they are most definitely cursing Israel. They're inviting Israel basically to what you and I might think of as a God-off A confrontation between the God of the Philistines and the God of Israel. But the farmers turned soldiers are scared. Here's why. There came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. And now we're going to get into some old measurements. I'm going to translate them for you into modern day terms so that you can understand what this man looked like. A champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. In other words, Goliath was nine feet and nine inches tall. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. In other words, the coat of armor weighed 125 pounds. Now, can you imagine a man who can dress for war with 125 pounds of armor? Some of you don't weigh 125 pounds. This is a massive man. Shaquille O'Neal is seven foot one, is listed at 325 pounds. The last time I saw him on TV, I think that might be a generous listing. <laughs> but I'm in no position to talk, so let's just stipulate that Shaquille O'Neal is seven foot one and weighs 325 pounds. If you add five pounds an inch, as sometimes people say you should, 
This will put Goliath at 9 feet 9 inches tall at 475 pounds in his sock feet. And this is the ancient world. I'm pretty sure he wasn't carb conscious. I doubt he was eating paleo and crossfitting and uh, concerned about simple carbohydrates and wheat bellies and sugar and all the things that bedevil and taunt us. This is a man born and built for war. He's nine feet, nine inches tall. If you can't envision that, understand that a basketball rim is only 10 feet off the ground. With David's, with Goliath's helmet, his head would have been bumping against the rim. If he stood beneath it, his face would be tangled in the net. The shaft of his, verse 6, he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. One more translation. The tip of the spear was 15 pounds. In other words, when he hefted this thing and threw it to you, he would essentially be throwing a railroad tie through you. You wouldn't be so much pierced as obliterated. Nine feet nine perhaps 500 pounds, fully armored, and just for giggles, a shield-bearer in front of him. This would have been an ordinary soldier with a tall shield who would stand in front of him to guard his lower portions at that height and to hand the man weapons in case he needed something else. It's an unfair fight. And Goliath doesn't want to fight the whole army. He just wants one. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, or are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they remembered the promises of God and stepped forward in faith. Is that what it says? (laughs) Not quite. And that's the point of the story. When they heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, it's very important that we understand why this story is here because this is one of the most used and abused stories in the whole Bible. Here's a Bible study tip for you. Any passage of the Bible that you're reading, gospels, epistles, prophecy, narrative, whatever it is, it can never mean what it never meant. Okay? There was an original intent when the original authors of Scripture sat down and told a story or wrote a letter or wrote a gospel telling us the life of Jesus. They had a specific point of view in mind. They had a message they wanted to deliver. And we can't, all these years later, make it into something that they did not intend it to be. It can never mean what it never meant. And we're reading Israel's history. We are not, for the most part, part of the Hebrew nation. But they were. They were to read this in their homes and be reminded of the things that God had done. They understood, if we don't, they understood the full spiritual significance of the defiance of this Israel, of this Philistine who is going to curse David and curse Israel by his gods. He's inviting them to a spiritual showdown. 
And the heart of the story, whether anyone is going to step forward and confront him, it all has to do with whether there's going to be a single man, and it should be Saul, whether there's going to be a single man in the ranks who is going to remember what God said and believe him. That's the heart of following God. Will we know and remember what God said and believe him enough, trust him enough to act on it? Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. He's doing boys' work. This is why I believe that David was that young. The age to go to war was 20 and above. He only sent three. That puts David, even if they were born close together, couldn't have been much older than his middle, late teens. What's David doing? David's going back and forth. He's tending his family's sheep. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. How many showdowns does that make? Anybody help me with the math? That's 80 times. This is a national embarrassment and this is a spiritual embarrassment. Because twice a day, morning and evening, Goliath is walking out ready for war and, say, and saying essentially, where are you? Why are you here? Let's go. If Michael Buffer were there, he might have said, any boxing fans? Let's get ready to rumble. Okay. Jesse said to David, his son, take your brothers and ephah, half a bushel of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. I love the details of the Bible. Dad wants to know if his boys are okay. And he gathers up this simple meal that would have traveled well and apparently grilled cheese is going to be on the menu. Because there's bread and there's cheese. Now Saul and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. I think that's written for irony. Because they're not fighting at all. They're in fighting formation, but they haven't joined the battle yet. David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. When you read the narrative portions of scripture and the Bible in general, slow down. Read the details. See it. It's there for a reason. God's the master storyteller. He doesn't waste a word. They're walking out doing what does it say? Shouting the war cry. To what point? To what effect? You understand what's going on? They're singing the fight song with absolutely no intention of fighting. Every man is thinking, perhaps if I sing in a persuasive way, someone else will man up and take care of this. They've been doing this for 40 days. And the story is about to turn. Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks and spoke the same words as before. Here's the hinge, and David heard him. Uh-oh. 
And it's not that he's messing with the wrong guy. It's that he's messing with the wrong God. David alone is going to understand the spiritual significance of what he's about to hear. David alone is going to remember and believe what God said. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. That means no taxes. That smacks of desperation. I have no idea if Saul's daughter was an enticing part of the deal. But Saul is offering his daughter in marriage, in other words, a political alliance for life to have favor with the king, and he's offering to make whoever steps up, your whole family will go tax-free. Let's put ourselves in that situation. If I could arrange it so that you would never pay taxes again legally, would you be interested in something like that? Saul is offering, in other words, everything but his crown. He's desperate for someone to deal with this. And it's becoming a point of national embarrassment and personal embarrassment because, remember, Saul's the tallest man in the nation. It was he who is going to look better than anyone standing in front of this soldier. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? Here's David's understanding, watch it. And takes away the reproach from Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so it shall be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the man, and Elijah's anger was kindled against Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. This is envy. This is the oldest brother who was passed over. It's the kid brother who was anointed. It's the kid who's watching the sheep somehow that's supposed to rule Israel someday. Eliab's upset about it. And on top of everything else, now David has pressure from his big brother to face. And David said, classic little brother response, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people him answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. Look how your attitude changes if you actually believe God. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Watch the wordplay. Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. This is David's faith. He's looking past the man. He's looking past circumstances and family pressure. And the tremendous embarrassment of going for the first time in your life to face something like this with your nation standing behind you and your aged father helpless if you and your fellow soldiers fail. 
David is not the slightest bit fearful or concerned about it because he has remembered and he is the only one who believes what God has said. And Saul said to David, uh, verse 37, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. So David put them off. More recorded history that is embarrassing to Saul. Saul's one of the few who has a sword, but he won't use it. Now here's a 16, 17-year-old kid who said, listen, God has been faithful to me and he has delivered me from wild animals. This Philistine, this man we're all so afraid of, he'll be just like one of them. God who protected me on the plains while I fed the sheep, he'll protect me on this battlefield as well. And Saul said, oh, thank God you're here. Here's my armor and here's my sword. Now, Saul was the tallest man in the nation, and David was just a kid, probably still had some growing to do. This must have been an absurd scene as David tried to walk around the tent with this long sword clanking beside him. Finally, he made it. You see the wisdom of this young man who trusts God even now. He didn't say, King, this is your job. King, these are your weapons. He said, I can't use them. I'm not familiar with them. I haven't tested them before. So he takes up a shepherd's weapons. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put it in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and, when, and he approached the Philistine. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, Listen to faith. Listen to what it looks like to remember what God has said and believe him. You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and all the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. You see, this isn't a political embarrassment. This is a spiritual embarrassment. David knows that the only reason they've settled in the land and their families are safe behind them in the land that God has promised them is because God is faithful. And David has the audacity to believe that it doesn't matter how big the threat is, God is still the same. And the God who promised them in this land and brought them out of Egypt and settled them in this place can deal with even this. Verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. 
So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Why is this story here? What was Israel to learn and why did God leave it for us? The New Testament tells us that the stories of the Old Testament, the history of Israel, is to give us warning and examples that we would have patience and put our trust and put our hope in God. Here's what I believe this story will teach you. If you will believe God's promises, if you will stand against the current and against the example of the people around you, and you actually believe God's promises, the first thing that will happen is, and first symptom is, you're going to act on God's timing and not your own. I wish I had time to tell you what I think is actually one of the quieter portions of David's life that teaches us perhaps even more than this story does. Here's what I mean. David had already been anointed king over Israel. Saul grew fearful of him because he could tell that God was with him. But between the time that David was anointed king of Israel to the day that David first reigned over Israel, 15 years went by. Now, remember, he's 16 years old, and he's going to wait 15 years. In other words, he's going to wait all the life that he's lived to that point before he actually sees God's promises come true. And if you do your reading this week, you remember seven of those 15 years David spent in Saul's house serving him. And an evil spirit would come upon Saul from time to time, even while David tried to soothe him, playing and singing music to him. And Saul would have something that Osha would simply not approve of, and you would certainly have a lawsuit. Do you remember what Saul did to David from time to time? Tried to throw a spear through him. Again, the story and the details, it said specifically he tried to pin David to the wall. Now, Saul is a warrior. And he has a spear, and he's going to work every day, a 16, 17, 18-year-old kid, with this in mind. Today might be a good day with King Saul, or today might be a day where he tries to murder me again and pin me to the palace wall. This he endures for seven years. And then Saul completely loses his mind, completely loses his bearings, completely walks away from God, and he chases David with his army throughout the whole land. David's staying only a step ahead of him. This is after all of this. This was part of the trouble. This is part of what created the envy, the success over Goliath. David pursued Saul for another eight years. David, if you did the reading, David one day had the drop on him. David and some of his men were hiding very deep in a cave. And Saul went into the cave, the Bible says, real life, real history, to relieve himself. And David's soldier says, we've got him now. This is your day, David. Kill him. Be done with this. And David said, no, I won't touch the Lord's anointed. There's so much faith there. There's so much trust in God because David is God's anointed too. It's just not his time yet. And David is content to wait on God's time. On this day, when David hears God being defied, he's ready to go right then, right now. As soon as he can be done with the king who just doesn't understand and get this crazy armor and sword away from him and go to the tools he's familiar and knows how to work with, he's ready to step on the battlefield right then. 
And then he's content to wait 15 years before he fully enjoys everything that God promised him. Why? Because when you believe God's promises, you act on God's timing and not your own. That has right now parking lot of the church relevance for us. Because what I see people doing and what I find myself doing is God's timing is seldom compatible with mine. He's either moving too fast or too slow. Have you noticed? I mean, how many of you are good at waiting? How many of you enjoy exercising patience? You're given an opportunity to wait on something for a long time. You, you enjoy it. You relish it. And you say, I'm glad this is good for me. Anybody like that? Everything in our culture pushes against us to think of waiting 15 years for God's promises to come true. Listen, we're a country, we are a fast food nation, and that should tell you something. I know we're not very good at waiting, most of us, because we eat fast food. And the, the chief thing they're telling you about the food is not that it's good for you or that it's a quality product. The advertisement is in the first word. It's fast. That's the whole selling point. They don't call it good food. It's fast food. <laughs> Just fast. That is its virtue. That's what it has going for it. And they've got a stopwatch sitting over the poor guy in the drive through window. And if it takes more than two minutes, the manager gets a little testy. And the guy behind you sticking his head out of the car like it's your fault. What'd you order? Right? Now, what in the world does that have to do with us? Everything. Because you live in an environment of right here, right now, fast. It's not in our nature. It's not in our disposition aside from submission to God to wait. And our culture has told us if it's not happening quickly, if you're not seeing God's will being done in your life right now, something is wrong. You need to make a move on your own. It's not true. Look what Isaiah said 300 years later to a nation that had grown weary of waiting for God. Even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. An essential part of discipleship is waiting on God. You see, when God is making you wait, he's preparing you. Fifteen years, God kept David waiting. He was willing to wait on God's timing. On the other hand, when it was time to act and it was God's reputation and God's name that was at stake, David was ready to step into battle right then, right now. He did not argue, I'm only 16. He did not say, I've got three older brothers. He didn't say, Saul, you're the tallest among us and the best looking apparently. Why don't you go fight him? We'll back you up. He just said, this uncircumcised Philistine, God made no promises to him. God promised to bless and protect us. I'll go fight him. This is no problem. What's that have to do with you and me? What I see Christians doing is falling in a ditch on either side of the road. God says move and you say I need more time. I'll give, I'll serve, I'll live, I'll forgive, I'll engage later. I'm still growing. I'm still maturing. I certainly need to know a lot more about the Bible. I need more seasoning. No, God is saying move right now. That's part of trusting God, moving when he says to. And on the other hand, when he says wait, understanding that it's not that he is not ready to do his will. He is preparing you to enjoy God's will and God's time. 
When you're trusting God, when you believe His promises, you act in God's timing, not your own. Secondly, you see the strength of God, not the size of the opposition. The whole point of the fear of Goliath, and that's why the Bible went into the details of the size of the man. Nine foot nine, 125 pounds of armor, a spear with a 15 pound tip. Terrifying. There wasn't a soldier among Israel who could heft the armor and wear it comfortably, much less fight him. And God arranged all of this to give his people a lasting lesson. It's not the size of the opposition. It's my strength that will see you through. But along with that impatience to act before God says to move, or on the other hand to delay and say I need more time to prepare, comes this temptation that some things are just too big for you. And when you think that, you're exactly right. They are too big for you, but they're not too big for God. He made lavish promises for them. And here's the point of the story. In this section, you need to understand this. The enemies of God's will in your life are going to keep doing damage until you face them in his strength. See, this battle never should have happened. Some 300 years ago, when Joshua first entered into land, the tribe of Judah, David's tribe, went first. And there's a little footnote in the first chapter of Judges. It says that when they encountered the Philistines, they did not drive them out because the Philistines had chariots of iron. In other words, Judah, David's tribe, said, "Uh uh-oh, we're outgunned. They have better technology than we do. We're foot soldiers. They have chariots and not wooden chariots. They have chariots of iron. We, We can't fight them. Because of Judah's reluctance to believe God, that God had promised Joshua, wherever you set your foot, I'll give you that land. Because of that, 300 years later, this same godless bunch of wicked pagans is a thorn in Israel's side. Dads, fight spiritual battles for your family and face the enemies of God's will in your life and be done with it to leave a better path for your kids. Dads, stop being content with the idea that your wife is more spiritual than you are. Step forward and lead. If she is more spiritual than you are, congratulations, you are blessed by God. Don't make that your cover. Well, she hears from God. I'll do what she says. No, if you're a follower of Jesus, he made promises to you as well. You're his beloved son. He made promises. He has plan. He has purpose. He has a blessing for you as well. That's why Proverbs 20 verse 7 says, A righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. David made a tremendous contribution to his nation's history. He stepped forward because he understood that his God and those promises were being defied and he was willing to do what his tribe wasn't willing to do because David was willing to believe what his tribe would not believe. That God would give them victory as long as they faced their enemies in his strength. Thirdly, you succeed where better people than you have feared and failed. Saul didn't get the victory this day. 
Soon enough, the women of Israel are going to sing songs that sound like this. Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Leadership emerges. The difference comes. The blessing from God comes. Not because God is unwilling to make promises and to keep them. Those things happen when people actually have the audacity to believe him. Listen, there's nothing separating you from being a person, a man or a woman, a teenager, a kid after God's own heart, if you will simply believe that what God promised to you is true and you act as if it's true. And we're in the Old Testament. We're a thousand years from the life of Jesus. Let me quickly tell you that God made greater promises to you than he ever made to Israel and he ever made to David. Jesus made promises like this to you, to his disciples. He said, I will no longer call you servants. I will call you my friends. Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, an ordinary group of Christians in modern-day Turkey, telling them that the Holy Spirit had come in to give them new life, and they had been sealed for the day when God fully made them his own, and that they had been set aside for God Sealed by the third person of the Trinity, stamped, marked as God's own prized possession. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. God promised that if you trusted his son Jesus, he would put his sins far from you. In fact, he would put your sins on his son so that he would only see you as righteous. That he would no longer see you as a servant or a slave or a guilty party. That he would see you as his beloved child and he would call you his own father. And that he loves you so much that you don't need to worry about what to eat or what to drink or any other earthly concern. But Jesus said, if you seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all of these things will be added to you. This great big book, 66 books, 1189 chapters, is bursting with promises of God's lavish love for you. Why do so few people experience that life with God? Because they don't believe him. Because the circumstances are so terrifying and so real and so right there that we dare not believe that all of it could be true, much less for people like us. But if you do, and you act on it, You'll please God. Look what Hebrews 11 verse 6 says. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. That's the difference. That's why David fought. That's why David won. He simply believed God. And God was pleased and God gave him success. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, am I telling you this is a straight line? No. If you keep reading the life of David, you're going to see David pour out his song in fear, in worship, in wondering, in asking, in yearning. It's all very real. It's all very human. No one is exempt from that. But if you keep believing, if you keep trusting him, you'll please him and God will do what he said he would do. Jesus is our best example, as always. Let me show you from 1 Peter what Jesus was doing on the cross. You see, David himself is just an earthly picture. He's an early picture and an imperfect one at that of the true shepherd, the true king, the real savior that would come for the rest of us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we're told this about Jesus. 
when he, Jesus, was reviled. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Let's stop right there. This is describing Jesus on the cross. What is Jesus doing on the cross? Have you ever wondered? It's in the last two lines. What Jesus was doing on the cross was entrusting himself to God. As they tortured him, as he began to die, at the moment he chose to give up his spirit and die for my sins and yours, at that moment and through the whole, his whole life, Jesus was entrusting himself to God. That's why we're his disciples. We want to mimic, we want to imitate, we want to follow his example of trusting God. Here's the effect of Jesus trusting his father. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Why did all of that happen? Because Jesus trusted his father. Every conscious human moment of Jesus's life, he was trusting God and he died so that all of God's promises could come and be kept for you. So what are you going to do as a modern-day disciple of Jesus? You're going to trust him. That's it. It's not complicated. It's just difficult. To fulfill his purpose and bless his people, what you and I have to do is believe God's promises. This Easter, and Pastor Gregory was mentioning it earlier, we have a golden opportunity to speak to friends and family. Between us, we can speak to thousands of people. And say, listen, come to church with me. Now, what am I going to tell them on Easter Sunday? That Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave so that their sins could be covered and they could have eternal life. And you're going to say, my man, my buddy, he's pretty scientific. He's pretty secular. He doesn't believe. He thinks I'm a little crazy. And you're going to have a Goliath moment. You're going to have a question. You're going to have a moment whether you believe God or not. Your family, your marriage, your employment, your provision, your savings, your giving, your retirement, it all circles down. All of these stories do to the difference between those who are willing to trust God and those who will draw back and wait for someone else to do it. My confession to you as a simple disciple is that I have not always done it. Too many times I've kind of hid myself in the army. And waited to see what happened. Tell God that I'm not ready. Or tried to get God to speed up his timetable. I can give you my personal testimony. Every time I've trusted God and acted as if what he said is true. Every single time I've proven him to be true. You won't find one person in all of scripture. If we could empty heaven and line people up who have trusted God. The countless millions of ordinary people who have trusted God. They would all tell you he always keeps his word. Your question is whether you'll trust him. Let's pray. Father, as we conclude our service, would you speak to those who need to trust you as Savior, those who've been wavering, putting it off? They're not sure if they're saved and forgiven. Would you pull them across the line? Would you tug on their heart right now? There are others, Lord, who are debating big steps of obedience like baptism who have 
problems that dog them in their spiritual life and their family and the way they relate to their wives and their kids and the way they do their jobs. God, would you, and thank you that you can do this individually, would you speak your word and your promise to us and give us the grace to believe you and see the result from it? Listen, church, if if somebody is here today who hasn't trusted Jesus as Savior, he was on the cross trusting the Father so that you could be free, so that you could be saved. If you're not certain of your relationship with him, make sure today and use that connection card and let us know what God has shown you. Let us know what you're deciding. And this week, you're going to have all kinds of fear and opposition. You're going to be tempted to keep your Bible closed and not be reminded of his promises. And when the circumstances seem too big for them, you're going to be tempted not to believe them. Trust him. Trust him. Trust him. And step forward with the expectation that he will act and he will keep his word. Father, we commit this time of decision to you. Lord, move in our hearts. Take us forward with you. Help us trust you better than we do right now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Crosspoint, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.